This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Former Ontario PC leader Patrick Brown has come out swinging in his new tell-all memoir that contains some blockbuster allegations about sitting provincial politicians and more. I spoke with Brown, who is now the mayor of Brampton, the day before the book hit the shelves. And... There's been a troubling resurgence of anti-Semitism here at home and across the world. It's been three weeks since the deadliest attack on Jews in American history took place at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. I speak with a Toronto man who grew up in that neighborhood. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. America's birth rate declined to a record low last year. In fact, it fell for all groups except women in their 40s, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If it falls again this year, it could impact Social Security by 2019 meaning Congress could raise taxes to fund the pension. The country's oldest state, Maine, is doing something drastic by paying off student loans to get younger people to move there. Here's the latest evidence for people who have embraced supplements of both vitamin D and fish oil pills as a path to better health. Two large and rigorous U.S. government-funded randomized trials of these supplements have found they do not lower cancer rates in healthy adults. They also don't reduce the rate of heart attacks, strokes, and deaths from cardiovascular disease. The studies were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. A British woman has defined the secret to living to 107 years old. Eileen Ash, who officially marked that birthday last month, was speaking about longevity at the opening of a $2 million sports facility named in her honour in Norwich. I think it's just a liking people, but breathing's the best. As long as you can keep breathing, you're OK. Ash once played cricket for England and stays fit these days by shooting hoops, taking regular yoga classes, and driving her bright yellow Morris Mini. The 107-year-old plans to take up martial arts at some point in the near future. Now to another British senior who's keeping fit at 92. Queen Elizabeth was photographed this week riding her horse on the grounds of Windsor Castle. The monarch has long been an avid equestrian, taking her first lesson at just three. But the queen was overheard telling her aides that these days she only rides in nice weather, avoiding the rain and damp days. And the Queen's son turned 70 this week. Prince Charles said he'll stop meddling in public affairs when and if he becomes king, telling the BBC his role will be, quote, 
very different. Not currently bound by constraints, Charles can now speak his mind freely on issues like climate change, but tries to remain bipartisan. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Just weeks after being elected mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown has come out with an explosive memoir of his ouster as PC leader in the wake of sexual misconduct allegations. He details being stabbed in the back by his inner circle and takes aim at former caucus colleagues, notably Finance Minister Vic Fideli, who he says was also accused of sexual harassment, and Community and Social Services Minister Lisa McLeod, alleging she was hated by her staff and volunteers who thought her mental health struggles were made up. I talked to Patrick Brown about Takedown, the attempted political assassination of Patrick Brown. In the adversity that I faced earlier in this year, there was a lot of attention. At the time, I wasn't doing much media, and I had a number of publishing companies approach me about telling uh, my story. I agreed on Optimum Publishing. You know, they were very clear that I could write a very honest assessment of what went down. And I told them I didn't want it released until after the provincial election. didn't want to interfere with the electoral cycle. And that's why we waited until the fall, even though much of the book was completed in the spring. And, and frankly, putting a light on some of the happenings at, at uh, Queen's Park, it's important. And, and I felt it was good for everyone to know exactly what happened. The two people in your caucus that you seem to focus on in terms of being against you are number one, Vic Fideli, the finance minister who you say dodged a bullet with some sexual allegations against him. We know those allegations actually did happen, but the woman didn't pursue it. Doug Ford in the legislature just said that there has been an investigation into that. Does that just with your take? I wasn't there. And frankly, whatever settlement, whatever was arrived at, uh, that's between Minister Fideli and, and the individual. I just highlighted in the book because I was privy to the lawyer's letter that was sent by the individual that it was very hypocritical uh, based on what Vic Fideli was saying at the time and you know, how someone in the midst of this could be saying such disingenuous comments like, you know, he said, I always believed the woman. And, and, and clearly that wasn't in the case when the allegations against yourself. The hypocrisy we see sometimes at Queen's Park is quite ridiculous. And, you know, I highlight in the book how I'm very happy to be away from the hornet's nest that is Queen's Park. The things you said about Lisa McLeod, uh, you say that people hated her, and also that she faked her mental illness, something uh, that a lot of so, people from all sides so, have yeah, have so condemned. Our, so, Libby, first of all, um, Lisa McLeod said that in response to the book, but that's actually not in the book. Uh, it's actually quite the opposite. I highlighted in the book that when the Eastern Ontario Organization Chair um, when uh, some of her organizers and staff felt that that was the case, that I actually went to back her up. Yeah, you said the, she should be given the benefit of the, the doubt. The benefit of the doubt, to the point that it caused real friction with Eastern Ontario organizers because I went out of my way to support her. It was particularly shocking for me to see how vicious uh, Lisa McLeod was in January when I faced adversity after I had always had her back. I had supported her through that entire situation against the wishes of her, the very own Eastern Ontario organizers that are still there. You come to the conclusion that both Fideli and McLeod 
conspired against you. Uh, what was their motive, and why did you reach that conclusion? I certainly say they seized the moment when there was the sloppy journalism of CTV, when there were those false allegations that came out, and uh, they took advantage of that opportunity yeah, and wanted me completely removed from politics. I made Vic Fidelli the finance critic. I prevented Lisa McLeod's nomination challenges at a time that she was facing adversity. And so uh, where I was particularly hurt and disheartened is despite going out of the way to show them support, the fact that they would conspire against me uh, just shows you how vicious politics can be sometimes. I think power can change people, that uh, ambition is dangerous. And so I think in the case of those individuals, it was probably driven more by ambition than anything else. I tried to explain to the party faithful that Bill Davis was, frankly, the premier that created the Ministry of the Environment, that Brian Mulroney had negotiated the Acid Rain Treaty. But I, I think it was very apparent that the positions I took as PC leader, there was acrimony within the hard right of the party on those positions. They really felt that I was moving the party too far to the center. Is your conclusion, were they out to get you? Or do you believe that they just, uh, at that moment, uh, when this was happening and they figured that you could not recover for it, they wanted to save their own behinds? I think when it comes to hiring mercenaries, ultimately they they look out for themselves. And uh, I think that's what happened. Uh, I'm not sure if there was any calculation prior to that moment, but I, I certainly believe they disappeared the moment that there was any adversity. What is your bottom line on exactly what took place here? I'm not sure. Uh, do I believe that there was an effort to have me removed as PC leader? Absolutely. But I think it all predicated on the false allegations. And so I took positions that were unpopular within the conservative movement that I thought were in the best interest of Ontario and in Canada. And I certainly made a lot of enemies on that journey. After you were ousted, Fideli and Doug Ford were talking about, quote, the mess that you left. And and you blame some of your staffers for those nomination problems, right? Well, no, actually, I don't. I wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star saying that I really believe that nominations should be run by Elections Ontario or Elections Canada federally. The battle really isn't the general election. It's winning the nomination. And we saw that by the sheer size of some of the nominations. It's one of the reasons I talked about why, you know, I heard stories that people were cutting corners or when I heard stories that people, allegations that people were cheating, that I brought in PWC uh, to oversee the process. And that was the first time a political party had brought in third party oversight. Anyone who is thinking about going into politics, not a nice business from what you described there. No, it can be pretty vicious. And frankly, I think this book gives an insight into political parties that you wouldn't normally be able to gather. It's normally how political parties operate, how caucuses operate. There's a real blanket of secrecy over those mechanics. And I think this gives a real insight into what happens inside a political party, what happens inside a, a caucus. That was Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, former Ontario progressive conservative leader whose new tell-all book hit the shelves this week. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how the worst attack on American Jews last month hit close to home for one Toronto man. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
Documentary producer and arts journalist Dan Rosenberg has explored the darkest chapters in Jewish history. But three weeks ago, it became personal. Now a Toronto resident, Rosenberg grew up in the tight-knit Jewish community of Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, now known around the world after the deadliest attack on Jews in American history. Most of his family still lives in that neighborhood. Squirrel Hill is one of those places that doesn't make the news very much. It's a Jewish community that is considerably smaller than Toronto's Jewish community. According to Wikipedia, it's like 40,000 people live in Squirrel Hill. And that's about the number of Jews in all of Pittsburgh compared to Toronto. That's like 180,000 Jews. So it's a much more concentrated neighborhood. But it looks a lot like the sort of Bathurst and Lawrence neighborhood where you have a synagogue or a Jewish bakery, kosher bakery on almost every other block. What was your reaction when you saw what happened? Well, the reaction was is just horrific. My mother still lives in the same house I grew up in, which was five blocks from that synagogue. And because it's such a small neighborhood, it's one of those neighborhoods where everybody knows everybody. As I mentioned, Toronto, the Jewish neighborhood runs along Bathurst from, I don't know, Eglinton, Sinclair, all the way up to maybe Richmond Hill, where Squirrel Hill is maybe two miles across. So you really know almost everybody in the neighborhood. Mr. Rogers lived there. I met him growing up. And sadly, I knew some of the victims. I moved away a while ago. I called my mother and my sisters immediately, and thank goodness they were okay, but They knew some of the people, and even a few weeks later, it's still an extremely traumatic experience. It is a few weeks later. How are people recovering? You know, it's really tough. And I'm going to share this little story. When I was a kid there, it was 1978. I was in the sixth grade, and I had this homework assignment to interview an immigrant about why they moved to Pittsburgh. So I decided to speak with my aunt and uncle, Abe and Eleanor, who were among the oldest people I knew. And Eleanor told me the story about the pogroms in early 20th century Tsarist Russia. And I didn't know much about pogroms at that time. I was just 11. And she told me how her family was raped and murdered. And she only survived because she was small enough they were able to hide her under the floorboards. And she came to Pittsburgh as a refugee, settled in Squirrel Hill, and told me that this city was paradise because for the first time in her life she could be safe and feel safe as a Jew, go to synagogue just walking down the street and feel safe. So now, you know, I keep thinking what they would think, that here's a city that they lived their whole lives in, that they were safe to be Jews, and now in Pittsburgh, there's no longer that feeling. So do people see this as a one-off, an aberration, or do they see this as a sign of uh, something dark that's brewing? Well, you know... It's not just in Pittsburgh. Even here in Toronto, synagogues have had more security in recent decades. When I was a kid, you could walk to any of the neighborhood synagogues if it was a bar mitzvah or a wedding or just any Saturday Shabbat service, and there was no guard. Nobody checked your bags, and nobody thought for a second anything would ever happen. I I never for a moment. I I talked to all of my friends I grew up with. I said, are we naive? uh, Am I just thinking to myself? No, no, we all thought we were safe, and we all felt safe going to synagogue. And, of course, this changed everything, but it has sort of had been changing just because of the environment we live in, with at least in the States, with the mass shootings and the security and sort of the post-9-11 world combined with that. We had feared that this would happen. We hoped it never would, but in the back of our minds, there was always that little something. But now, the feeling going to synagogue, even in Toronto is looking over your shoulder. So in Pittsburgh, it's even worse. Are people 
healing or not? Well, I mean, the, the, the time does help. I mean, my mother told me almost nobody came trick-or-treating this year, which was right after the shooting. And it's a neighborhood full of kids, and it's normally a, you know, knocking every, every few minutes on the door. And that kind of says something. The city has come together. It's a very diverse city. And at least that's something, both here and in Pittsburgh, all over North America, we saw people of all faiths coming together, both at the vigils and coming to synagogue. And I don't go to synagogue very often, but I went the weekend after this happened, and my rabbi asked me to talk a little about squirrel hell. And I honestly don't know how I would have gotten through it if there weren't people of other faiths sort of showing their support. Priests and imams, Muslims, Christians, all of us joining together saying that this is completely unacceptable. How do you look back on what was a wonderful childhood and what was a beautiful neighborhood? A neighborhood where you had the best kosher bakeries next to the best Italian pizzerias. And all of a sudden it's come shattering down and it's tough. Okay, thank you so much for sharing with us. Well, thank you so much. That was Toronto resident Dan Rosenberg, who grew up in Squirrel Hill, where 11 Jewish Americans were recently gunned down. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a Canadian folk rock icon who's also known for his environmental work celebrates a birthday this week. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. It's a new multimedia art and music exhibition. The Velvet Underground Experience focuses on the iconic band and has opened in New York's Greenwich Village. Sunday morning. The band with collaborator Andy Warhol had a major influence on music, fashion, art, and culture. The bohemian atmosphere of Paris in the late 1800s is captured at the National Galleries of Scotland. Toulouse-Lautrec and the Art of Celebrity explores the work of one of the most innovative and popular French artists of his era. The Morbid Museum at University College in London is now open to the public. Curator Subhadra Das presides over 2,000 specimens, including the remains of a sword swallower. She calls it the ultimate safety at work scenario gone wrong. And 41 artists have come together in Sydney, Australia, to create works that examine responses to weaponry and warfare and their connection to that country. I'm Jane Brown, and that was the International Arts Date Book. Neil Young celebrated his 73rd birthday this week. From his early days in Buffalo Springfield to the supergroup Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and his time as a solo artist, Young has had an enduring and successful career. This year has been one of ups and downs for the rock icon. In July, he tied the knot with his longtime girlfriend, actress Daryl Hannah. But just a week ago, the couple's Malibu home was destroyed by the California wildfires. And this is the second California home that Young has lost to a forest fire. The rocker released a statement saying California's forests are vulnerable to fire, not because of mismanagement, like U.S. President Donald Trump suggested, but rather because of climate change, extreme weather, and drought. 
Right now, we'll travel back to 1972 and hear one of Neil's biggest hits from the album Harvest. Here is Heart of Gold. I want to That was Neil Young with Heart of Gold. The Canadian singer-songwriter celebrated his 73rd birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer, and thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.